You know, God has a sense of humor, doesn't he? You know, last week I talked about what is a healthy church. I asked some questions. I said, is a healthy church about big programs, lots of lights, big stage like this? I wonder if the smoke machine's about to burst up. Chris, did you set that up too for us? Big practical joker. Um, no, God does have a sense of humor. I guess there was a large event here last night and they couldn't tear down uh, the stage before this morning. Um, perhaps he wanted us to smile this morning. Well, my name is Dave Furman. I serve as the senior pastor with Redeemer Church of Dubai, and I'm excited to open up God's Word with you again today. If you haven't already turned there, you can turn to 1 Timothy. Uh, it's towards the end of the New Testament, towards the end of your Bibles, in a portion of Scripture called the Epistles or the Letters. Well, as you're finding your way there, I just want to highlight one announcement from this morning, and that's our newcomer's lunch that's happening directly after the service uh, to your right in the side annex. There'll be food there. It's free. And uh, whether this is your very first Friday, or maybe you've been coming for a while but haven't gotten connected yet, if you feel new to us, please join us next door. You'll get to meet many of the elders and staff of the church. You'll get to meet other people that feel new. You'll get to hear a little bit about our church, and you'll get opportunities in a small group to ask whatever questions you want of a staff member um, or an elder. So join us for that. Well, if this is your first Friday with us, uh, we started last week a 12-week series in the book of 1 Timothy. It's a letter that answers the question for us, what is a healthy church? What makes a church healthy? I asked some of these questions last week, is it the meeting facility? Is it the entertainment? Is it the strength of the preacher? Is it the music? Is it the amount of money it has? Is it the programs? Is it the kindness of the members? Well, last week we learned the first thing that makes a church healthy, and it, maybe it was a bit surprising. Maybe it's not the first thing that comes to your mind when you think what makes a church healthy. Well, we saw that healthy churches love the congregation by protecting them from false teachers and guarding sound doctrine. These false teachers were misusing the law. They were promoting endless myths and speculations. And Paul charged Timothy and the church to guard against these counterfeit gospels that were hurting God's people. Well, today Paul's going to continue that argument. It's sort of a part two to that initial discussion. And the main point is this. Let me summarize it again here in the beginning of the sermon. Healthy churches hold on to the true gospel by faith and a good conscience. Healthy churches, they guard the true gospel by holding on to faith and a good conscience. Well, not only do healthy churches guard against false teachers, but they hold on to faith. They hold on to a good conscience, and we'll see that coming out of three points as we walk through the text. We'll see the sinner, the saved, and the shipwrecked. First, we'll see a picture of the sinner, and second, a picture of the saved, and third, a picture of the shipwrecked. So first, the sinner. Look at verses 12 and 13. Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Now, our passage is filled with Paul's overwhelming thanksgiving to God. Before he ever moves into his argument, he tells us that he praises God for three blessings. First, he thanks Jesus for strength. For a believer to serve, they need divine enablement. Paul's effectiveness as a minister did not depend on his gifts. It did not depend on his talents, but on God himself. He makes that clear. Well, second, he praises God for finding him trustworthy with this ministry. This doesn't mean that Jesus trusted him in ministry because he was inherently trustworthy, the whole section is emphasizing that everyone's salvation, everyone's ministry is not merited, but it's a result of God's grace, mercy, and choice. Paul's not arguing here that he deserved this calling or that Christ foresaw that in spite of his sin that Paul would prove faithful. 
No, rather the sense here is of the power of divine calling to bring certain fruit in our lives. As Paul reflects on this, his argument is that his ministry to this point has shown the effectiveness of God's choice. He's been trustworthy by the grace of God. Well, look at the third thing Paul praises for. Paul praises God for his appointment to service as an apostle. Again, Paul didn't convert himself. Paul didn't make himself an apostle. He didn't sign up for the job. It was an appointment by God for God's purposes. This is a good word for us in ministry, isn't it? Now, our ministry, not just Paul's ministry, but our ministry is an appointment by God. It's a gift. It's given to us by Him. Now, whether it's full-time pastoring, church staff work, or whether our ministry involves evangelism and discipleship in the workplace, it's a gift. Preaching is a gift. Being on the connections team is a gift. Laptop, sound, community group leadership, ushering, music, setup, tear down, bookstall, Redeemer Kids, Jumpstart, Regeneration Youth Ministry, they're gifts. The discipling of your own kids is a gift. Discipleship in the context of the church, men meeting with men and women meeting with women, that's a gift from God. Now, proud people want to be thanked for how great they are in ministry. But humble people like Paul are in awe that God would even allow them to be involved in ministry. It's a privilege and an honor. Oh friend, how do you think about your ministry? Do you praise God for the ministry that you have? Do you thank him for the gift? Whether it's up front or whether it's behind the scenes, whether lots of people see what you do or whether no one sees what you do, whether you think it's an important task or whether you feel like it's an unimportant, medial task. God chose you for that assignment. Are you thankful for it? Or are you bitter about it? I was incredibly struck by this and convicted of this verse this past week. I feel like I'm all too often get caught up with the difficult things of ministry. I get tired. I get weary. And I forget that whatever ministry any of us gets to do for God is a most outstanding privilege. That we don't deserve to be ambassadors of God. We don't deserve to serve the King of Kings regardless of the task. It is a gift. It is an appointment by God, for God, for our good, for His glory. It's a privilege. And Paul praises God for that privilege. And it's all the greater considering Paul's consideration of the depth of his sin. Did you notice that as Esther read verse 13? Paul says, I was a blasphemer. This is someone who speaks evil of God or curses his name and says things about God that aren't true. But he was also a persecutor. This man who God appointed to be an apostle was a persecutor. He tried to destroy the church. Acts chapter 8 speaks to this and says that Saul, which was Paul's former name, He was ravaging the church. He was entering house after house and he was dragging men and women out of their house and he was committing them to prison. Acts chapter 9 says that Paul was breathing threats to Christians. You couldn't differentiate between his breath and his threats. It was on his lips continually. It flowed out of him as naturally as breathing air. This wasn't just a side job or a hobby for Paul. This was Paul's life. He lived to persecute Christians. When the men took off their coats to murder Stephen, where do they put them? You may remember they put them at the feet of Paul. He was the one who made sure they weren't stolen. He looked over that stoning with great pleasure. And then he went to get government approval to go into the synagogues and to look for more Christians so he could drag them out like a piece of meat and put them in prison. Now this man was a hunter. He was hunting down men and women who were followers of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, the text says he was an insolent opponent. He was a violent man. 
Paul says, I wasn't just a bad guy. I was awful. I was terrible. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor and a violent man. I was a murderer. It sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? But Paul's story is also our story. The Bible actually teaches that all of us, like Paul, were created to be in a relationship with God. That was our purpose, to enjoy God forever. But all of us, from Adam and Eve on till today, we've broken that friendship. We've rebelled against him. We became idolaters. We made ourselves God in his place. And the Bible says because he's holy, because he's perfect, because he's great, that the punishment must fit the crime and that we deserve death and judgment. The Bible says we are wicked and deserve death and judgment. But not only that, Paul actually says in the book of Ephesians that apart from God, we are dead. That we are dead in our trespasses and sins. The Bible actually uses an image of us apart from Christ as a dead corpse. Lifeless. Just dead. Back in my home country, there was once a powerful leader who came to faith. came to faith, he was mesmerized by Jesus. Repented of his sin, he believed in Christ, and he was one day baptized in a lake. And the minister, upon baptizing him, said to this man, that your sins are washed away. And this man replied, God help the fish. (laughs) Now, of course, his sins weren't floating downstream now, because they were placed on Christ on the cross. But what he was saying is that he understood how wicked he was. He understood that he was a a sinful, wretched man. See, apart from God's intervention in this man's life and our lives, we are dead without hope. Oh, friend, that's the plight of a sinner. There's no hope apart from God. Oh, healthy churches understand that apart from God's intervention, there is no hope. But thankfully, God did intervene, didn't he? Thankfully, there's good news. We see that there is hope in God. That's the second point of the sermon. It doesn't end with the sinner, but number two, the saved. The saved. We have some, some good news this morning. Look at the second part of verse 13 down through 17. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul, he was a sinner. But he was also saved. He says he received mercy because he acted in unbelief. That's the first part of those verses. Now what does that mean? Sounds a bit confusing upon a quick reading. Now it doesn't mean that his ignorance makes him worthy and therefore on his own he elicited mercy. Now that would contradict the rest of scripture. We always let scripture interpret scripture. If the whole Bible says one thing, then we need to be careful when examining one verse that seems confusing at first glance. Now, Paul didn't earn mercy by his ignorance. He was still guilty of sin. So why then make this admission here? Well, we need to understand and remember the context of chapter 1 here in 1 Timothy. The central theme we've seen is guarding against false teachers in the church. So look at the contrast here. Paul sinned before coming to faith in Christ with his blasphemy, among other things. But the false teachers who are viewed here as believers, or at least those who profess to be believers, whereby their sin, they have now rejected the faith. See, Paul's sin and the false teacher's sin, it looks similar at first glance, but they're actually different. 
Paul's saying, I got mercy. I hadn't even believed yet, but what the false teachers are doing is completely different. They were supposedly believers who knew the truth. Paul's sin predated his conversion and the opening of his eyes by the Spirit, whereas the false teachers already knew the truth. They were supposedly believers, and so the consequences of what they're doing is more severe. And then in verse 14, Paul then describes that grace that he received freely. He says that it overflowed for him. I read a story this week of an artist who once painted a picture of the Niagara Falls, this great big waterfall, and he gave it to an art gallery, but he forgot to give a name for the painting. And so the art gallery came up with a name on their own. And the name they gave was More to Follow. Now, Niagara Falls, it's been spilling water for for thousands of years, billions of liters of water each year. And there's always more to follow, isn't there? Always more water to fall. It never stops. See, what Paul is saying is that with God's grace, there's always more to come. That I have met a waterfall of God's overflowing grace. And this grace came with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul's referring to faith in Christ and love for God. We saw that earlier in verses 5 and 6 that Paul was condemning the false teachers from turning away from faith, from turning away from love. So in contrast here, Paul says, I received faith, I received love when I came to Christ. The true gospel is supreme over all false gospels. And Paul goes on to describe four things about this true gospel. So last week he said these False teachers are preaching a false gospel. Now here's the real gospel, and Paul says four things about it here. First, he says that the gospel is true. It's not like those other messages that that are false, that are lies. This gospel is true. It's trustworthy, he says in verse 15. It's a faithful summary of the gospel. The content of the gospel is true. It's trustworthy, and it's in complete opposition to those myths and those speculations that the false teachers shared. It deserves everybody's complete acceptance. Secondly, we see that the essence of the gospel is that Christ came to save sinners. The essence of the gospel is that there's a reason Christ came to save sinners. Paul's saying Jesus is not merely a good teacher, but he's God in the flesh. And the primary purpose he came to earth was to save sinners. He came to save us from sin, came to save us from the effects of sin, from death, from the punishment of sin, from hell, from the evil one. Christ came on a rescue mission to save sinners in every way, completely and forever. Oh friend, this is good news. So what did Jesus do? Well, for you, the Christian, he left the glories of heaven. He left heaven and he lived a perfect life in your place on this earth and he died a death, a sacrificial death in your place. Because see, the wages of sin is death, but for Christians, your sin was placed on Jesus on the cross. Every last sin was placed on him and he was punished and he was killed instead of you. They stuck Jesus in a tomb as a criminal and as a blasphemer. And what happened? We know that the cords of death couldn't hold him. That he triumphed over death. That he was raised to resurrection life. That on the third day that tomb was empty. And that hundreds of witnesses saw the risen Christ. That they saw that this man couldn't be kept dead. That he was indeed God in the flesh. That the sacrifice was sufficient. Oh friend, that's why Jesus came. He came to save sinners. And that is good, good news for us. But it gets even better. He came not just to save certain sinners who were eligible for salvation. Look at the third thing Paul says about the gospel. Verse 15. God can save anyone. Think about that. God can save anyone. There in verse 15, Paul says that God came to save sinners of which I was the foremost. That brings us great hope, doesn't it? 
gives us astounding hope. Don't despair. Paul says, Christ had mercy even on me. No, friend, he can do the same for you. The Apostle Paul was the poster child for hope. No one expected Paul to be saved. He didn't show any signs of contrition or life change. When he was saved, he was on his way to murder Christians. He was there on the road to Damascus, and a light flashed from heaven. It came right out of the sky. It was unexpected. It blinded Paul, who ironically, after he was blinded, he finally saw Jesus for who he really is. God in the flesh, that he had been persecuting God. And he was converted. His conversion was all God. It was unexpected. The murderer became a minister. But Paul's conversion shouldn't be a shock to those of us who are Christians. Because we could have been Paul. We could have been worse. Maybe we are. Well, that's true of everyone in this room. If you're a Christian, it's only by the grace of God that you're as good as you are. When Paul says, I am the worst of sinners, he meant it. He said, I am the arch sinner. He says, if there was a ranking of the world's sinners, one to the bottom, I would be at number one. And he wasn't exhibiting false humility. In fact, this is how all of us should feel. There are two reasons for that. Number one, in our minds, we know we're as bad as the worst sinner because we realize that our sin, just like everybody else's, is a sin against our maker and our creator. But number two, we should feel even worse because we know the deceit in our own hearts. Only I know the deceit in my own heart. Only you know the deceit in your heart. And when you put those two things together, every Christian should talk like Paul's talking here. John Bunyan, the man who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, you may have read that book. He also wrote another book, kind of recounting his own spiritual journey of how he came to faith in Christ. And he titled that book, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And Bunyan said, of all the people I know, I am the worst. Now, if God could save the Apostle Paul, a man who put Christians into prison and took pleasure in seeing them killed, then there is hope for all of us. He saved Paul, and he can save you. Non-Christian friend, do you think you're unsavable? Are you a murderer? Have you committed adultery? Have you been involved in homosexual relationships? Have you stolen money? Have you been addicted to pornography? Have you lied? Have you hidden dark secrets from your family? Are you doing any of those things now? Well, consider this. God had you in mind when he saved Paul. Look at verse 16. Paul says, I was saved so that, now listen to this, so that Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Now Paul was saved. One reason Paul was saved was to show you and me that anyone can be saved. Do you see that? Anyone can receive this grace and this mercy and this love from God. It is unconditional. It is unmerited. It is undeserved. Oh, friend, are you from Nigeria, Korea, or Brunei? It doesn't matter. Were you born into another religion? It doesn't matter. Are you a murderer? It doesn't matter. Have you persecuted Christians? Have you killed the children of God? It doesn't matter. Do you have some hidden sin? If you've been so wicked that you just think that there's no way God could love you, 
If you haven't become a Christian because you think there's no way God could love you, I want to tell you that you are very, very, very fortunately wrong. That your sin can never outdo God's grace. Grace from God can overflow for the sinner like the Niagara Falls overflows every minute of every day. I just happened to come across an article this week um, on the internet about a lady named Kelly Gissendainer, who's on death row back in the U.S., for murdering her husband 18 years ago. She's been in prison. She's on death row, and she's actually scheduled to be executed this week. In prison, though, she began to study the Bible. She began to read God's word. She actually took a theology course in prison. She went through it, and she saw Jesus. She saw her sin, and she repented of it. She trusted in Christ to save her, and she became a Christian in prison. And after becoming a Christian, she reached out to a man named Jürgen Moltmann. Dr. Jürgen Moltmann uh, is from Germany. He's one of the most famous theologians of the past century. He's 88 years old. He's still going strong. And Kelly and Dr. Moltmann began writing letters to one another. And they shared dozens of letters over several years and became good friends and pen pals. They had met on a couple of occasions. And Dr. Moltmann actually flew in from Germany to the U.S. to attend Kelly's graduation from this prison theology program that she was a part of. In the last couple of years, Kelly's had dozens of people testify for her about her life change and about how she's a new person to try to get the execution turned into a life prison sentence instead. And I loved how uh, the article ended. It ended with a quote uh, from Dr. Moltmann. And he said this. He said, If the state of Georgia in the United States has no mercy, she has received already the mercy of heaven. Then the article just ended. A friend, God can save murderers. Kelly Gissendainer, a murderer, is not beyond the grace of God. The Apostle Paul, persecutor and murderer of the children of God, is not beyond the grace of God. Dave Furman, sinner extraordinaire, is not beyond the grace of God. And friend, whatever you've done and whoever you are, you are not beyond the grace of God. No one's sin goes deeper than the love of God. Friend, come to Jesus. If you're not yet a believer, it is your only hope. If you would repent of your sin, if you would turn from your sin, if you would acknowledge that you are indeed a wretched sinner, if you would place your faith in Christ to save you, he will. You see that in verse 16. Believe in him for eternal life. There's no good work you can do to erase your sin. There's no, no make-up points you can earn. It is only by grace. If you, if you come to Christ, he won't look at you and say, oh, oh, you're too wicked to come to me. My blood doesn't quite cover your sin. It's not strong enough. So, sorry, pal, get out of here. No, Jesus says to all, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All. Jim Elliott, the great missionary to Ecuador, said that in the church, we're all just a bunch of nobodies telling everybody about somebody who can save anybody. Isn't that the truth? He can save anybody. His mercy is greater than our sin. Well, Paul tells us a fourth thing under the second point. Fourth thing about the gospel. He says, acceptance of the gospel causes us to break out in worship continually. Acceptance of this gospel causes us to worship this king And the thought of the gospel here, as Paul writes, is just too much for him to handle. And he just erupts in praise. Verse 12, he praises God for his commissioning and conversion. Now in verse 17, he praises God for who he is. He sandwiches his testimony between two pillars of praise. 
His whole life is permeated with thanksgiving to God who saved him. If you're saved by works, who gets the praise? Well, you do. If you did it, then heaven claps for you. So when you die, heaven does a standing ovation for you. Here he is. He's finally here. Dave Furman has made it. Don't you love him? And heaven gets to their feet. And everybody pauses while they put my good life highlight film on the screens. No. No, that's not what happens. The scriptures say that it is by grace you have been saved. Ephesians 2. Through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. So that no one gets the praise. So that no one gets the honor. So that no one can boast. And we're all We're all wicked. My first pastor used to always say, if you knew how wicked I am, you wouldn't come to the church and listen to me preach. But if I knew how wicked you are, I wouldn't let you through those doors. It's our story, isn't it? Apart from God, we are wicked people. A couple weeks ago, Chris Lejeune on our staff, he was teaching about this gospel at another church, at a kind of a workshop And he shared the truth that apart from Christ, we're dead. He shared the gospel. He said that we are like a dead corpse without God. And there was a lady there who was upset. She was upset at the thought that she was dead. But see, she's wrong on two accounts. One, she has a too high view of herself, thinking that she can contribute something to her salvation. And two, she has a too low view of God, that God... God merely helped her along as she was saving herself. Now that diminishes Christ's life and death on the cross and makes him to be someone who tops off our salvation by adding a little extra to it. There are others who oppose this idea. There are some who have changed the lyrics to the great hymn, Amazing Grace, that we're going to sing later today. They sing instead, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved and strengthened me. Now, grace does strengthen, but Newton was talking about the grace that saved a wretched man, that brought a dead man to life. Well, friend, if you're a Christian here today, it should shock you that God has saved you. If it doesn't shock you, then then you have a problem. Because you were dead. You were dead. You were lifeless. You were without hope. And now through Christ Jesus, you are alive. You've been born again. Oh, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Oh, this truth of salvation should never cease to shock us. The great Jonathan Edwards has never ceased to be shocked at his salvation. He said that in heaven, I shall be the most amazed at people who I thought would be there, but are not there. People who are there that I didn't think would be there. And most of all, the fact that I am there at all. Well, the good news of God's saving grace never gets old. It always leads us to worship. Always leads us to adore God when we realize again that we don't deserve it. That's why we don't move on to a better message at Redeemer. There's no better news. This is why we preach it every week. Oh, friend, if you're a Christian and the gospel doesn't move you to worship or you tune it out when it's preached, then you have a problem in your heart. See, Paul understood he needed to be reminded because his sin wasn't a past issue. You'll notice what he says there. He doesn't say, I was the chief of sinners, but I am the worst sinner. No, our need for the gospel doesn't stop when we become a believer. The good news of the gospel is balm for our weary souls every day. Just like when I get home after a day of work and my kids run up to me and they give me the same hugs they gave me the day before. Or when I go into the kitchen and I tell my wife that I love her just like I did the day before and just like I did that morning. It's not that my wife doesn't know that I love her. It's not that I haven't said it before. It's old news. She knows it, but it's sweet to hear it over and over and over again that you are loved. And so after considering the gospel of salvation again, Paul, he bursts out in song. 
Hearing the gospel again, reminding himself that God saves sinners of which I am the foremost. Paul, remembering that, he just, he just bursts out in song. It moves him to worship. Look at verse 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He says, God is king of the ages, king eternal. The God is the one who reigns over all ages and governs the past, the present, and the future. That he never had a beginning and will not have an end. That he was not made and always existed. That he was the king before creation. That he was the king in creation. That he is the king after creation until the final days and into all eternity. All earthly kings and kingdoms pass away, but he remains forever. He's the king of the ages. And Paul says God is immortal. That God can't sin. That he's not subject to destruction. That he's incorruptible. That he doesn't age. That he won't ever die. Rivers change course. Mountains erode. Stars can collapse. Humans age and die. But God does not change. And Paul says God is invisible. We can't see him. He exists in an unapproachable light. And he gives God all the glory for being the only God. That Jesus is not merely a prophet in a long line of prophets. He's not merely a good teacher among other teachers. He's not merely a God among other gods. But Paul says this God is the only God. All glory and all honor be for this God forever and ever. Amen. Now Paul looks back at his testimony. He looks back at the gospel and he just bursts out in praise and worship. Healthy churches are filled with members who are in awe of the gospel and their salvation. Healthy churches are filled with members who burst out in praise when they remember what God has done for them. Fellow Christian, consider your testimony and how God saved you. Remember how precious his grace appeared to you that hour you first believed. May it move us to praise. Share your testimony of faith with others. Even do it today at lunch at the Algarera Center Food Court or at the Newcomer Lunch if you're going there. See, it encourages us when we share how we came to faith and it encourages us when we hear how others have placed their faith in Jesus for salvation. Because in the Christian faith, there are no boring testimonies. Someone very dear to me likes to say that there is no such thing as a boring, born-again birth story. And she's right. The testimony of how God brought you, a dead person, to life is an epic that makes Braveheart and Star Wars look boring. Well, in our text so far this morning, we've seen a picture of a sinner One who has rebelled against God and is dead in sin. We've seen a picture of the saved. One who's been radically transformed by his grace through the death and resurrection of Christ. One who's been brought from death to life. And finally, thirdly, we get a charge and a warning. We see in this passage the shipwrecked. That's the third thing we see this morning. The shipwrecked. We see this in verses 18 through 20. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their life, their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Well, Paul charges Timothy again with the weight of a military charge from a commanding officer. What is this charge? Well, it refers back to the same charge from verse 3. Paul is finished with the digression of his testimony, and he's calling Timothy to protect the church and to guard the doctrine of the church. In between the two charges, Paul weds the gospel. He's saying that the gospel is the bedrock of which all our right understanding of theology comes from. And now, once again, at the end of the chapter, he's going to appeal to Timothy as a child, as his child in the faith. He's going to urge him to remember some prophecies that were previously made about him. Now, what are these? Well, at some point in the past, 
probably from Timothy's commissioning, there were some prophecies made about him. We know this from 1 Timothy 4.14, where Paul writes, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now the elders laid hands on him. They spoke some truth into his life. No, we don't, we don't know the content of the prophecies. Maybe it was referring to a gift of preaching or teaching. We know, though, it was an important part of Timothy's life because Paul says, don't forget it. Don't forget that time when we made prophecy over you and laid hands on you and prayed for your future. Stand true. God has equipped you for service and he makes no mistakes. Timothy, you were chosen for this assignment. Timothy, wage good warfare. In chapter 6, verse 12, Paul tells Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. Now, from the beginning to the end of the book, Paul's telling Timothy that this is a war. This whole letter is wedged between those truths. Timothy, this is war. Well, how do you fight? Well, two things in verse 19. Holding faith in a good conscience. Holding faith. Paul says, hold on to the truths. Hold on to this gospel. You're in awe of it. It it has saved you, but hold on to it now. Hold on to the fact that he is God. Hold on to the fact that salvation is by grace through faith. Don't let these false teachers sway you. Believe the truth and guard the truth in the church. And then he says a second thing. Hold on to a good conscience. This means you not only believe the gospel, but you live it out. You're able to move from knowledge to making good decisions about your life. Live a life in accordance to the truth. Timothy has a choice to make. Is he going to go the easy way, give in to the false teacher's Or will he hold on to the faith in a good conscience? Don't make a shipwreck of your life, Timothy. See, a shipwreck means that a ship that can carry people and goods is now crashed on the shore and it's useless for its original purpose. And this is what happens to a church when a church no longer has faith in a good conscience. There are churches who have given up holding the Bible as truth. They are churches who have let sin rule and reign among them. What's so serious here that Paul actually mentions the two culprits by name. Paul doesn't tell us exactly what Hymenaeus and Alexander did, except that their sin involved blaspheming in some way. In 2 Timothy 2, we see that Hymenaeus said that the resurrection was already past. There's no future hope for believers one day to be raised along with Christ. Now, as you read this, are you surprised that Paul names names? This letter was sent to the church in Ephesus. It would have been read aloud to the church members. No, Paul names names because it's their job as elders and members to guard the doctrine of the church and to warn the church of who's teaching falsely or living in unrepentant sin. Ephesian church, go out and pursue these men. Pursue Hymenaeus. Pursue Alexander. Pursue these men who are shipwrecked and bring them back. Restore their life. And it served as a warning to the church. Friends, don't let your life be a shipwreck. Now the sin was so serious that Paul writes in verse 20 that these men have been handed over to Satan. Now this is a reference to church discipline. Now, Paul used the identical phrase in 1 Corinthians 5 when he speaks of the incestuous man as he ordered the church to practice church discipline and to hand that man over to Satan. Now, delivered over to Satan means to be put outside of the church membership. When a Christian fails to repent, the church should exclude him from the protective fellowship of the Christians in Christ's body. Now, this is excommunication. And they are now without the spiritual protection of the local church, of which Christ is the head who nourishes everyone. But notice, as you see in those verses, this discipline was not permanent or irrevocable. The hope of this discipline is that the offenders may learn, did you see that phrase there? May learn not to blaspheme. It wasn't final judgment, it was an act of hope. The purpose of discipline was corrective. 
Perhaps by being in the world, they would come to understand their sin. And that the church in that moment would welcome these men back with open arms if they would repent of their sin. So why do we do church discipline at Redeemer? Because we are holding on to faith in a good conscience. We do it as an act of love because we want that unrepentant sinner back with us. In fact, church discipline is the greatest act of love for the unrepentant sinner. We love them so much that we have difficult conversations and we work hard at rebuking them because we want them to come back. We pray that God would bring them back. And Matthew 18 tells us that it only gets to that point when you tell church members you do that only after everything else has been tried. Friends and other members try meeting with them. Elders meet with them one-on-one, two-on-one. There's plenty of meetings. There's plenty of prayer. There's plenty of conversation. There's plenty of time to give them time and space to repent. But eventually, in order to win them back, it moves to the church discipline at the membership level. Now, this is one of the most difficult things that elders and church members have to do. I mean, it grieves our hearts. It takes time. It's difficult. We shed tears. We agonize over people out of love. In many ways, we'd rather not do it. We'd rather just move on. But we lead our members in it for the good of the church, for the good of the individual, and for the glory of God. Now, I know some of you have been involved in some difficult church discipline cases. Maybe the church was too harsh. Maybe that church did practice church discipline in an unbiblical way. Maybe people were hurt. It can be done wrong. Have I seen churches do it wrong? Yes. Have we been perfect at Redeemer? And sadly, no. If you've been involved in a painful church discipline case, I'm so, so sorry. Maybe even just hearing the words church discipline today, maybe it's a bad word in your vocabulary. Maybe it just brings up all kinds of hurt, all kinds of emotions. Maybe you or others were shamed in unbiblical ways. Maybe you're still hurting. I'm so, so sorry if that's you. Oh, may God bring healing to your heart. But hurt feelings or the wrong use of church discipline is not a reason to drop what's biblical. We see church discipline here. We see it in other passages. If you want to study later on today, Matthew chapter 18, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we never outsmart the Bible or find a better way to do it. We trust that God has prescribed the best way. Now, healthy churches do church discipline as an act of love for its fellow members. If you're not a member of this church or another gospel preaching church, let me, let me, just, let me just say this, that my wife Gloria and I will never be a part of a church that doesn't practice church membership or church discipline. Gloria and I are very committed to this. We need it as a hedge of protection around our lives. I don't trust myself. I need you, I need others to look after my life, to guard my heart, to watch how I live, to watch what I say, to watch if I'm holding on to the truths and a good conscience. I need to know that if I sin, if I veer off in some direction like Hymenaeus and Alexander, I need to know that there will be people who love me enough to speak hard truths into my life. I need to know that there'll be people that'll bring me back to the faith. That are seeing if I'm holding on to faith and a good conscience. And I know that you won't let me just leave this church and sin. You won't let me just run and hide. You won't let me shipwreck my life. You'll come after me. You'll pray for me. You'll speak truth into my life. You'll rebuke me. You'll pray for me. Oh friend, I need you. As a fellow Christian, as a fellow brother in Christ, I need you. We need each other. Well, in our passage, Paul shows us what it's like to be a sinner, dead and hopeless. He shows us what it's like to be saved, that it's God's grace that brings us to life. And now Paul gives us this warning. Christian, hold on to faith in a good conscience. Wage good warfare. Oh friend, there will be false teachers that will come in trying to get you to believe something else. There'll be pagans telling you it's okay to sin. It's okay to live a life of licentious living. Fight. Fight. 
Redeemer Church of Dubai, fight. Let's protect ourselves from a shipwrecked life and let's wage good warfare. Oh, stay in God's word daily. Attend this corporate worship gathering weekly. Confess your sin to fellow Christians regularly and get your sin in the light. Join the membership of a church that takes false teaching and immorality seriously. And pray. Pray for God's grace in all these things. Because healthy churches are filled with members who guard the true gospel by holding on to faith and a good conscience. Oh, may these things be true of us. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, help us as a church hold on to the faith. Help us be a church that's filled with members who guard the true gospel by holding to faith and a good conscience. Would our church guard against false doctrine and false teachers? Would we be a church that stays true to the Bible? Would we be in awe of our salvation? And would we care for the members of this church in love and discipline as needed? Or would your glory go forth from this church? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our final two songs this morning were written by two men who were amazed that God would save them. John Newton was a slave trader and a wicked man who experienced God's life-changing grace. He could never get over the fact that God would save a wretch like him. And so after his conversion, he wrote a song called Amazing Grace. And then Charles Wesley wrote a song called And Can It Be around the time of his conversion. He couldn't believe the extravagant grace of God to save him. This is evidenced with the use of the singular pronoun me throughout the song. Wesley couldn't comprehend that God would save him personally. He describes his pre-conversion state as one in which he was an imprisoned spirit, bound by chains of sin in a dungeon with no hope of escape. And that it was only the grace of God that set him free. O fellow Christian, as we close by singing these two songs, may it sink deep into our own hearts that Christ died to set us free. That it is amazing grace indeed. Please stand with me as we sing in response to the gospel of grace.